0: Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses for an audience of entrepreneurs who are building companies right now and aspiring to greatness. Now, there's a problem that today's guest solved that I I wanna see if I could relate to it, Vishal. Tell me if I'm right on this. 2021, I'm thinking through my year. I say, maybe I don't wanna do three interviews a week. Maybe I go to two. I don't know. And immediately before I can let myself think whether it's right for my audience, whether it's right for my life to switch to two. The first thought that comes to my mind is, did I promise HostGator that I would give them three interviews a week? What did I promise to SEM Rush? I sold them a whole year worth of ads before the year even started. Did I say that it has to be three? Now, for me, there are two ways to go about it. One is I can go and figure out what folder I put their agreements on my Google Drive, which is kind of a pain because I usually put it in the same folder, but sometimes not. And then I have to go in and read the contracts. And then I have to make sure that I didn't miss anything. And it's it's a hassle. Or since it's a smaller set of conversations, I could just contact them and reach out to them and say, hey, is it okay if I go to two? Here's how I think it'll benefit you, but no problem if you prefer three. Bigger companies, though, have this problem times a 1,000, times multiple thousands, right? What did we agree? Are we allowed to move our stuff off of Amazon uh, Cloud because we just got a deal from Google or because Microsoft just went better? Or did we commit that it's got to be Amazon? Where did we put the agreements? Did all the salespeople put it in the same place? Or did we have an old process? Where is it? So Vishal Sunak had this problem in a previous company, and he said, it's got to be a solution. And when there wasn't, he said, I'm going to create the solution. He created this company called Link Squares. It is a place for the legal team of a company, believe it or not, the finance team, but believe it or not, beyond those teams, their contracts. Like I didn't realize that in many companies, the C, is it the CFO or the CTO who, who handles contracts, Vishal? Uh,
1: both, yeah, both. And, and uh, if you're not a CTO that came up from contracts, which I don't think there are any, uh, huge headache. Yeah, yeah. Huge
0: headache. He goes, you know what? I think software can do this even better. He didn't understand the space. He learned it by talking to people who are potential customers. And then he created this thing that works with artificial intelligence. Am I right? Can I actually use artificial intelligence? or Are we just pretending that there's AI?
1: Oh, there's definitely AI.
0: To figure this stuff out. All right. I invited him here to talk about how he built up link squares. It's a great, uh, business idea. I want to hear how the business is doing. And I want to find out a little bit about his background, we could do it thanks to two phenomenal sponsors. The first is Hostgator, the company that uh, was Link Squares built on Hostgator in the beginning? Uh,
1: yeah, our, our first marketing website. So thank you to Hostgator.
0: Um, and the second sponsor just said, you know what? Don't even tell people that Unbounce is a great way to build landing pages. Andrew, we want you to give the techniques that you write a book or write a guide or something. I said, How about one about how I, I interview people? They said that's exactly what we we're hoping for. Tell us the different techniques that you use to open up conversations. So I did. If you want them, you can go to unboundcom slash mixergy. They won't even ask for your email address. They'll give you that guide. They just wanted me to write. And I appreciate them for doing that. Um, can we talk about revenue? You open about roughly where the revenue is right now at Link Squares.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean r- right around 10 million
0: AR. Wow, we. The whole thing happened because Backupify was being sold. Backupify was this company that said, you know what? People need to back up their data when in the old computer days, they would back it up on another computer or hard drive. And the internet, we want to be able to back things up in the cloud. You guys built this company, you sold it. And then what was the problem that led you to discover Link Squares?
1: Yeah, so the acquirer company, Datto, came in and they said, uh, our our goal and our mission is to uh, save costs and not pay your AWS bill. And if you can imagine we're backing up like three petabytes of data three times a day, like hundreds of billions of static files, super expensive and great service that Amazon offers, but really expensive. And they say we have our own cloud. We have plenty of space for your data. Tell us which customer's data we can move without their permission, we'll start there. And it was one of these like total little shocker moments. Like we've never thought about not using AWS ever like what's in our contracts? I don't know. Where are they all? I don't know. Because yeah, me- you want to make
0: sure that your that your clients who are paying you to store their data and keep it safe are okay with you moving away from Amazon web services or maybe they signed up only because of Amazon web services.
1: Yeah, so let's break it down like in a base like our base contract, like a subscription agreement. It would give us the right to change where we store your data at rest. But if you're a smart company and you're looking at different things, you're negotiating it. And if you're paying big money, you're definitely negotiating it. If you're paying really big money, you're a big company and Backupify is a small company. so they're actually forcing you into their kind of standard subscription services agreement that big companies like to torture little companies with. And so we have done all those things, right? I wouldn't say, I mean, I think we had like 6,000 companies were backing up. I think maybe like a third, you know, a third to half had actually redlined their contract. So what does that mean? Like, They're all a little bit different. They could be the same in this, but we didn't know. Right? And so that's a problem that gets created. You inherit third-party paper. You inherit modifications to your subscription agreement to get deals done. And over time, you build up this debt. This knowledge debt keeps on getting accumulated, you know, deal after deal after deal. And if you have no way of actually tracking what you've agreed to, there could be a moment in time where someone asks you a question like this and you're completely unprepared to answer it. And the path to getting that answer is hundreds of hours, thousands of hours, tons of cost, And it's like a point in time way of understanding it. And so we thought that this was a big pain. We were a series B venture-backed company growing super fast. It feels like every other venture-backed company is selling B2B, growing really fast. And we went out with this mission to, to understand it. And that's exactly what we figured out.
0: What did you do at Backupify before you figured out the solution? When you had this company buying you out, asking you to move over to their cloud, what did you do with the contracts?
1: Yeah, so they were they were stored in a variety of places, everywhere from printed out in a filing cabinet in our controller's office, uh, Google Drive, uh, Box. Dropbox, attached to Salesforce opportunities, kind (laughs) of haphazardly uploaded there. uh, Inside of Gmail accounts here, we were a a Gmail, a G Suite backing up service. So in old sales reps accounts that no longer works here were signed agreements. I mean, in a great way, we were growing super fast. In a terrible way, we were growing super fast and kind of keeping up with that. There was no like single source of truth, right? And so Part of that exercise was like, okay, I'm an engineer. I like breaking down problems. That's what I do. Okay. Can we find all the contracts? Where are they all? Obviously like our ERP has the one-to-end list of every single customer. Like what can we learn about where these matching contracts are? Okay. If we can collate them, how do we get access to this information? Well, you start clicking on these PDFs. They're all scanned PDFs. I mean, DocuSign is like a thing and electronic signature is like a thing it's still not every company in the world. And surely you're looking back into a company that started in, I don't know, 06, 07, 05. I mean, electronic signature is like a, a very common thing now, but but 15 years ago, 10 years ago, it wasn't really.
0: And so, and so you so- literally would go through all the contracts to see who you can switch, who you couldn't, and well, do it well. manually? A human being had to do that?
1: Well, we Well, we looked at the challenge ahead of us and the timeline that, that the company that was going to buy us was asking for. And it. it's like, can't be done. I mean, oh, it wow. can be done with like hundreds of people, maybe. But like you offshore it, you know, very expensively or pay a law firm. I mean, we didn't see a real great path. I mean, Andrew, personally, between the two of us, we decided to email everyone. Hey, we're going to maybe move you off the US. Send us an email if you think this is a bad idea. Uh... I mean, that's the absolute only answer we had. Was email the customer base and tell them, and God knows what what email address those went to and whether they bounced or not. So it was a you know listen the the sale of the company went through and they worked through it right, but uh, it was a but you real understood the moment.
0: problem with it because of that and that's what led you now to create the solution. Let me just ask you for a moment about Backupify. I am still a customer of Backupify. I remember discovering <laughs> it and saying. I've got my files in google drive what happens if for some reason we lose access what happens if i can't get the files themselves what happens if somebody deletes it some way and i signed up it's it's not very expensive they still back up my data i needed it a little a few months ago i went in i found it and from Backupify, and then a few hours later they put it back in my google drive it seemed like a killer idea but it's not it doesn't seem like it's embedded enough companies why not
1: hmm. Yeah, so uh, if I if I plot the trajectory of the company, yeah, they they were in like a category creation space, and when you're a category creator, this this the space like cloud to cloud backup that was kind of indented and branded around backup and what they were doing, um, it just it takes people may not realize it takes a long time for new markets. To and I think that they actually started in a consumer type of backup, like backing up your Twitter and backing up. Th- then it was like backing up your personal Gmail. And then all of a sudden they started seeing people sign up with things that weren't at gmail.com because that was the same time that Gmail was being offered to businesses as an email client that they could use in the cloud. And so that kind of started to carry the wave. So there was a lot of like, waiting around and waiting for some of these innovations to occur now smartly they saw the opportunity when people were signing up for BackUpify with not at gmail.com and they were signing up with you know uh you know what are linkscores.com as a domain and then starting to saying like oh my god you know you check the mx record the mail exchange record and it's being sent by google that means that google is actually the email client uh, yeah. zynga they're running on google suite we can build a massive company here, but I mean those things take time. I think I think people can undervalue like forging your own market, being a category creator, which I'm sure you've talked about with a lot of other people. Like it's so hard to be a category creator.
0: Why? It, it because it doesn't well, feel like you're you're not in. You're not inventing anything brand new with Backupify. You're just taking something from the old world and bringing it to the new world. In the old world, your email would be on your computer. If your computer got busted up for some reason, you'd want to have a backup of it. So you have everything that you need. In the new world, it's all in the cloud. If something happens to the cloud, you want to, but why didn't that translate?
1: Probably number one thing in the early days was people thought Google would back it up. Which they did. And and they created like an archiving solution to like the vault product, but people were kind of unaware to the problem that they could face, right? Like, so if Google is your provider and providing your backup, there's a chance that Google could lose it all because it's all within the same product suite or product offering yep. or company. Our whole message was like, why don't we create a secure second copy in another cloud? So even if like Google is having, you know, uptime percentage issues and you can't get the get the data or you have a holistic data set that it's yours regardless of what google chooses to do policy-wise that just took a while i mean ultimately it has to become like the cio on the cio's radar they have to know that this is a problem um, that it has to get budgeted it has to and then all of a sudden like you know i'm there like 2013 2014 like you know things start happening like we start coming up we start being a budget item like oh my boss, I'm the IT manager. My boss told me that I have to explore, explore uh, Google Apps backup. Like then the strategy was we owned the organic page one rank on Google Apps backup. And maybe we still do Backupify. And then it was just like inbound leads just flying in. Just uh-huh. flying in inbound leads. Because cause like people started to understand that maybe creating a se- secure second copy was a good idea. So, I mean, great, great journey. Tons of fun. Some of the most fun that I've ever done.
0: I see. So what I'm learning from you is, it's it still takes a while for people to understand the problem when it's a brand new problem. And frankly, when it comes to backups, they might need to have a problem of losing their data, a really painful uh, issue, or maybe read about it in the news before it becomes enough of uh, before they have enough awareness to go and sign up. And then. Once you get to the point where they are aware, customers come in, orders come in, it becomes easier. But then there's another issue in your space or in backup of space, which was Google was starting to do a lot of this. They were becoming more dependable. They were starting to take on a lot of of that work. I I um, uh
1: another way to think about it is if you had 100 conversations with CIOs, like when the company got started, maybe one out of every 100 would think that this is a problem. And then another year passes and maybe it's 10 out of hundred. And then another couple of years passes and it's like 50 out of hundred. And then ultimately what it actually became is like, you know, maybe like 80% of people were like, I understand it. I know it. I'm looking for something. I, I know we have to solve this. It's now a priority for me. So, I mean, that okay. just takes time. It's just an evolution. It, it takes time before people are willing to spend the dollars and know that they have this problem, right? It's activation of the market.
0: I still, by the way, love Backupify. And, and one of the reasons why I love it is mm-hmm. I just needed to move off of one domain to another domain and from Gmail folders to, to uh, to uh, I guess they're they're not calling it um, G Suite anymore. What are they calling it now? Works, workspace, I think. Workspace, I guess. But I needed to Genius. just move it around and Google wasn't making it easy. So I just said, I'll just go to Backupify. I'll get it all down from there and I'll move it where I want it to go. Um, you then said, okay, I see the problem because we worked on it at Backupify. It's time for me to solve it. You didn't know the space enough. And so one of the first things you did was you brought in a co-founder and then the next thing was to start talking to general counsels. Why'd you bring in a yeah. co-founder and what were you looking for in Chris?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, Chris and I were both at Backupify and, and Chris had actually had the entrepreneurial spirit even before he joined Backupify. And so he, he was always kind of thinking about you know, maybe there's another company, you know, I can start and, and we just kind of hit it off and became friends and, and I really appreciated his, his kind of entrepreneurial hustle. I mean, the early days of starting a company are just, it's so slow and iterative and tons of no's and, and yeah, Chris was just so well suited to be the frontline person in the company who wanted to devote the time to do the customer discovery. and. And we paired nicely, like given that like I love building software, and he loved the sales part of it and the discovery part of it. I mean, it was kind of like a natural fit. I think two two teams of two that start companies can balance each other out, and we did that for a while. We did that for like two and a half years even before we had like our first employee.
0: And so and this was uh, you building the product for that period. What was it Tuesdays and Sundays? I think you told the <laughs> producer.
1: Wednesday nights and Sundays. Why yeah. Wednesdays
0: and Sundays? What was special about those uh, we, days?
1: Well, we were working full-time. Uh, so, so Wednesday night was kind of like middle of the week, like get, getting, through, getting through kind of the early part of the week. We used to meet over um, near MIT at a little at a coffee shop that no longer exists, but MIT's guest Wi-Fi was the fastest around because like when, oh, you, yeah. when you don't have an office, you realize like you need really fast Wi-Fi. And so thank you to the good folks at MIT and their Wi-Fi infrastructure. <laughs> um, Sundays were a good day. Uh, you know, Sundays were a good day for us to, you know, convince our now wives, both of us that, uh, uh, we're going to go do some work together and, and work on this idea. And so that's what we chose Wednesday nights and Sundays. And
0: you just hang out and you would build, he would do what? He's a technical person yeah, so, too, right?
1: Uh, no, he was actually more on the sales and the account management side. So okay um, when it was the decision whether we were going to continue to pursue it, Chris actually jumped first to go full-time because you couldn't have the conversations with people outside of the work, work at work week and the work day, right? To talk to a general counsel and and show them maybe like a clickable demo or a slide deck, you need to get into their work day and I could build a product at nights and weekends and that was fine. And so that's how kind of the two of us got got it off the ground. It was an incredible, incredible journey.
0: Did you get into... Being an engineer because of Apollo 13, the movie?
1: <laughs> yeah, my, my dad is a is an electrical engineering professor. And so I grew up with that. Uh, I, I always like tinkering and building things and Legos and disassembling remotes and figuring out what's inside them. Yeah, I, I watched Apollo 13, I think, when I was 12. And when the scene where they're like in space and the and there's an extra person and the CO. Is being uh produced by the you know by the astronauts and it's going to eventually kill them and they build that filtration system with the air with all the kind of parts i was like man that's awesome i want to do stuff like that huh. and and it was like a natural fit i mean in that sense i was lucky that i had a lot of exposure to it with my dad and and uh, kind of had a natural inclination to be doing that um so it was a natural fit and studied on you know engineering and undergrad
0: is engineering like that now? Does it, I, I know there are a lot of people who went into law because they would watch some law movie and then they go into the law and they say, this is nothing like in the movies. I'm just sitting doing paperwork.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean every profession is sensationalized by TVs and movies. Um, surely, I don't work in NASA or JPL or something like that to, to be in the front line of building air and I don't work in air filtration. So, I mean, I think... I think engineering provided a great foundation for just like general problem solving, right? No one's an, no one's an expert when they get out of undergrad, right? Um, it it really it really made me appreciate kind of that muscle of like solving problems, breaking down problems, kind of design thinking, uh, and then and then put me on a path where yeah, I went through a great undergrad. I went to Northeastern. So so much of it is like practical learning through co-ops and and kind of six month placements where. I worked at a defense contractor. We were in the middle of Arizona testing weapons in the desert, like dropping bombs and stuff. Wow. Like it was the wildest thing. I was like 20 years old. I was in Arizona doing field testing. I mean, some of that kind of, it's all about the practical and the and the academic, right? And I think there's, there's a lot of cases to be made, people who didn't even go to undergrad and have built amazing careers with the practical, right? And I think it's just a foundation for, understanding like problem solving and, and kind of solving problems.
0: I should say this interview is sponsored by HostGator. If you need a web hosting company, I urge you to go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. You'll get an inexpensive price, dependable service. Why did you guys use HostGator? Do you remember?
1: Yeah, it was easy easy to use, (laughs) Um, easy to use, easy to set up for a hack like me to to put some HTML (laughs) files up there and and set up the DNS to point it to Linsquares.com And, and uh, I think someone that I knew kind of that was a web developer was like, hey man, you should just use HostGator. He's like, it's 20 bucks a month. Like it's easy. I'm like, all right, let's
0: go. It's even cheaper than that, guys. Look, it doesn't <laughs> have to be brain surgery. This is not the best and most important decision that you've got to make in your business, but get it started by going to hostgator.com slash They'll slash that price, the lowest that they've got available and they'll give you hosting that works. If you want to know how well it works, go to Mixergy.com right now. I host on HostGator and so many others do. HostGator.com slash Mixergy to get that low price. So what I, what I was amazed by was you didn't know the space well enough to go and start creating and solving the problems. You started having customer conversations. How did you even get those customers? How did you even find people to talk to?
1: We had no idea how, like who manages contracts inside of a business. Like We knew that in Backupify... We had a CFO and a controller, and it seemed like they were the ones. But what we didn't have was a general counsel. Like, we didn't have a general counsel in-house. So, like, I missed that whole part of the learning of, like, what a general counsel does. Conversations happened with some CFOs, people we knew. They kind of pushed us to, like, more mature companies, like bigger companies. They have an in-house dedicated lawyer whose job is to manage the legal function of an entire company and it was like, dang, it's the general counsel, but oh no, we don't know any of them. We don't know a single general counsel. Um, we, we, we had an assumption that companies that looked and felt like backup of FISA, so like tech companies, venture backed, could be great fits. Uh, we bought some, some leads, uh, some, some email leads and we wrote a Ford email drip sequence. <laughs> and uh and used the tout app which was acquired by marketo tout app yep and just started emailing general counsels with like hey i'm vishal uh i worked at a tech company we didn't know what was in our contracts does it sound like you do you want to talk and i remember the first week we hit send on like i don't know maybe 200 like this is outbound prospecting right that's the official thing but um when we hit send on the first drip we got like Ten or fifteen replies to the first email. I remember like high-fiving Chris. I'm like, "We made it, bro. We did it." You know, and, and man, how long of a journey it's been! Hundreds of millions of emails I think sent after that. But um, that's how we got started, right? But all and you then,
0: were trying to do was say, "Can I talk to you?" I'm not even selling.
1: Well, we didn't, we didn't really have anything to sell then. We were just trying to like, "Hey, do you have this problem?" And then people get on the phone and be like, "Hey, what's going on?" And we're like listen, we're, we're, we're working on this company. Like we wanted to ask you some questions. Are you down for it? And they were like, yeah, absolutely. And, and
0: so it was, what's the problem that got them to respond to your email?
1: It was some of the emails that we wrote around, like you just raised money. So like, did you have to do like part of your financing, read all your contracts and you have to do that. That's called a disclosure schedule you disclose this when you're raising cash with investors, you have to essentially show like, you know, top 200 contracts, the ones that are materially different. And some of them were like, Oh my God, we just came off our series C fundraiser just raised $80 million. And it was such a headache because we didn't know what was inside any of these. And it was like, okay, yeah, this is starting to build momentum. And then we built a clickable prototype. So we can be like, you know, here's a, you know, let me show you a demo of the product. Like this kind of completely fake. It was just a clickable prototype. And like, Push the, click on this button and they're like ah oh, no you don't want to see that there's nothing there it's like, <laughs> trying to see them to the next demo but we were able to get a lot of like iterative feedback
0: it's like a mock like, what, what did they so what did they tell what what did they tell you in the first calls before you built things up that you didn't know
1: well we were trying to understand like like do you have this pain how do you describe it how do you solve it today what is the headache around solving it and a lot of people were like it's really painful manual review. Like we've got to drop 500 files down and I click and open them all individually. And it was like, whoa, my, con- my confirmation is true. And, and you can't stop at just one. Like we, we targeted like, can we have a hundred conversations with companies that we are essentially willing to burn? Like, like some of great companies that we talked to like unicorn startups that responded to the first email I, I like joke with Chris now about it in my head of sales. of like, man, I, what, what would I do to have this unicorn, you know, back on the phone now with all the great stuff that we have to offer them. But um, you have to be willing to make those bets. You have to be willing to say, I'm going to burn a hundred companies just to learn. By
0: burn, you, believe, you mean what? What do you mean by burn?
1: Like, like it's not going to convert to any money. You're doing it for a specific reason to learn.
0: But you, I mean you can't come back to them later on as easily as mean.
1: I mean, you can, but you have to be prepared to like use them for the purpose of knowledge and not use them for the purpose of revenue.
0: Right. Got it.
1: And, and like, if, if our like market sweet spot is like, call it 700,000 companies in the United States that fit the profile of being a Lenscourse customer, a hundred out of 700,000 is like fine. But you're not going to be able to get the rest of the 699 odd thousand until you know what the software is that needs to do and what pain point and how to message it and how to talk about it. So that's what okay. we did.
0: So they're telling we're you, we're opening really everything up. You're learning the language that they use to describe it. And then you create that first mock-up. That's almost like that first version of the iPhone where Steve Jobs had a clear path that he was allowed to tap on the screen, right? Because if you yeah. touched anything else, the whole thing would break. What, what did yours do? What was it that the first set of features that you showed off did?
1: A really basic kind of repository, uh, some reporting capability. This was like pre-AI, so like full text searching and just messaging around like, why don't we give you a single source of truth? Why don't we digitize scan PDFs to make them searchable and give you the ability to run like text queries, like two so- word pairs, sentences, phrases, Um, That was kind of like the minimum product experience that we started with. That's what I got all around the, Uh sorry, go ahead. What I was going to say is all around the pain of manual review. Like, how can I give you a tool Google, like for your for your contracts, like a Google engine search for your contracts. That's how we got
0: started. That's what I got from your conversation with Ari, our producer that it wasn't brain surgery yet. Now it's just, when I go to your site and I see what you're offering, it's just worlds apart from the beginning. But yeah. it's interesting how much the beginning does make sense on its own. You're saying a single place where all the contracts go, then a way to even take the non-digital contracts, the paper ones, right? You're basically creating a scanner and OCR on it, which you're not inventing that's existed and putting them again into that repository. And now an easy way to go through them, including find uh, um, with a, uh, different search uh abilities in there, right? Yeah, exactly. Like put quotes around phrases that really matter to make sure that all the words are put together in the search results. That's what we're talking about. That's that's it.
1: That was it. And then what happened was people were like, I like the full text search, but why can't you just tell me what the effective date is? Why can't you just tell me if this contract has automatic renewal? Why can't you just pull out Uh, the limitation of liability paragraph and just show it to me rather than me having to search for it? And then it was like, you know, light bulb went off. That was like, this is an AI journey. This is like an algorithm that can read a contract. And this is language processing, natural language processing. That's the subcategory of AI that we work in. And then we had to go and do this whole AI journey from scratch, which is like me reading about like, How do you build NLP systems like, oh, okay, well, you know, you got to have the algorithm framework and you have data processing pipeline, you got to label data. And it's like, that's the entrepreneurial journey we've been on. It's just like discovery, work, discovery, work, fix problems, solve things, overcome.
0: You you know why in the beginning I said, is it real uh, artificial intelligence or not? Is because at some point AI became a magical like keyword for companies to use, even yeah. if their clients don't know what AI is, they'll call themselves right. something.ai. Right. And you do have artificial intelligence. I think, don't, don't you even have it to the point where you help them write contracts? Am I right about that?
1: Yeah, so our, our artificial intelligence and our analyzed product, which is our post-signature product, um, it can read a contract and extract 60, over 60 pieces of metadata in five minutes.
0: And what do you mean by metadata? What do you look, I, I saw this on your yeah. site, but help me understand yeah. it better.
1: Yeah. So a piece of metadata is like the effective date, who are the parties? Um, what is the assignment clause? If you're in a change of control situation, um, how many days do people have payment terms and the way that it's listed, right? Then we create structured data. So we post-process the extraction into like a structured data. So then you can write a report, you can run a report on a structured data. it's like, show me all contracts where automatic renewal equals true, boom, here's the table. Got it. Right, And so that's the AI, A joke about the AI with people. And I say, these millions and millions of dollars and years of our lives that we've dedicated to this and all the PhDs and data scientists that we have working with us, ultimately it translates down into a 30 by 30 pixel that's a green light bulb that says we're high confidence in this value and here's the answer. That's it. It's a 35, 30 pixel. How
0: did you, how did you get to that point in the beginning? Let me see when you guys, you guys launched when it was 2015, about five years ago. Yeah. Artificial intelligence has come a long way, right?
1: Yeah.
0: In the beginning, how did you, how were you doing this? Were you using someone else's software, someone else's services to do this?
1: No, we've, we've, we've always prided ourselves on creating our own solution and creating our own data processing pipeline to actually process and then the, the process in which the algorithms are built and trained. Right. And so uh, we actually started with two algorithms uh, the effective date and automatic renewal equals yes. Uh. And then starting with like labeling, like going on a very long, and this none of the stuff is fast, none of the stuff is fast or fun. But like I used to spend my nights like labeling the effective date in contracts so that we could train a machine. No, that was the first two that we built. And then we prototyped some infrastructure, how to process it, and we learned a lot about the processing infrastructure. Like, if we were going to do a hundred terms, like, how would the cost scale? And luckily, I was, I was, you know, really fortunate to bring on like a really great CTO who's like a cloud infrastructure expert, and and we ultimately figured out like the most cost-effective way to do it. Um, and and that, you know, it, it didn't that really didn't happen until you know we were raising like our seed round you know, in 2018 when we raised our first kind of institutional capital and we could get you know more data scientists and more infrastructure engineers in the company to really kind of productionize it to what it is today but it started off as like prototypes validation that it could work
0: i was looking at your seed round why was mass mutual in your seed round
1: yeah mass mutual i'll uh, uh, really kind of Older, maybe one of the first insurance companies in the world. They have a great uh, VC arm that's that's into fintech and into into uh, reg tech and and uh, I had a I had a chance meeting with with them here locally in Boston and and to join Hyperplane, which was like an AI fund. They were like kind of like a perfect addition, and so they kind of they co-led our seed round. Uh, but yeah, I mean we we loved big priority for me with our seed round was like raising this, this money at home. Like, cause this Boston. community is really everything, right? Yeah. Like raising it at home, having that support of our community, having support of like great angel investors who, you know, multiple time founders and exits who, which one that was really.
0: Um, so I was looking on Crunchbase; They don't show your angel investors. I probably should have gone to angel but who are they?
1: <laughs> uh, uh, Rob May founder of BackUpify. I uh, Dave Balter, kind of multiple serial uh, entrepreneur here in in the Boston area. Uh, Jerry Doyle worked at uh, Sigma Prime. He was there for a while. Uh, uh, Phil Beauregard, uh, another kind of serial entrepreneur here. I mean, those are some of the-
0: What was your process for for uh, for raising money? This was your first time, but you've seen the process a little bit, right? Didn't you with Backupify?
1: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, supported some of the fundraising stuff. I mean, I think- it's a sales job, you got to appreciate that. You got to treat it like a sales job. Like you got people in different stages. You got to get top of funnel moving. You got to get people who, I mean, taking, for example, taking money from someone like Dave Balter and getting him excited about the business ultimately led to like, you know, more checks coming in. People like, oh, Dave's in on this? Okay, great, yeah, I'm in too. So it's a sales gig. I mean, you got to run a process, it's a sales gig. Uh, I actually use HubSpot CRM every time I fundraise because it's like very much like a deal flow, like certain people are in certain stages and trying to move them through.
0: And Because they do it as a Kanban funnel. board with different columns for each part of the process, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, I think about it that way. But yeah, I mean, being a first timer, nothing's easy about it. Uh, um, not, nothing's easy.
0: Why didn't you go to law firms? Law firms have lots of clients. This issue would be a problem across the board for them. Yeah.
1: Oh, believe me, we've tried. Uh, <laughs> we we've tried, and I, I think there's still um, innovation to be uh, gained inside of law firms as to how they think of software, how they think of efficiency, and how they think of kind of the satisfaction of their customers. I don't. I think some of the the, the way they make money, right? The re, some of the revenue model on an hourly kind of cost and hourly basis is kind of working against my story of being more efficient. Uh, but yeah. I mean, we've had some great like referrals come from law firms who are kind of more tech enabled and they kind of see the future of like where in-house teams are moving to and the kind of pains that they have and trying to be like a value-added provider. So we've had like some great relationships with law firms that are like, I don't want to cut of the deal. I don't want a referral fee. I just want to make my customers happy. i happy to have you kind of chat with them. Here's a couple that we thought you know, could use your product and we, we seek a better future where we can continue to, to help them have great relationships with our
0: customers. All right, what about this? You're starting out, the thing has got some bugs in it. For some, some software, we could deal with bugs. You're talking about HubSpot. The early days of HubSpot didn't have to be perfect. We're talking about marketing. Inbound marketing was brand new. Marketing in general is more forgiving of mistakes. But when it comes to the law, right? If we're talking about making sure that we understand our contracts with our, with our clients, there's very little room for error. How'd you deal with that? I imagine you limited scope, but you tell me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It took a, it took a lot of people who are way smarter than me, especially like the PhD level to actually understand that. I mean, this is a probability, right? It's not an absolute, it's a probability that this is the effective date of the contract and we can find it. And so we, we focus a lot on the intersection between AI and human and how we can provide transparency and build trust, right? That was one of the things that we talked about you know, even back 2016, 2017, when we started the AI journey, which was really around the intersection between when does a human know that a machine made a determination? Do they agree with the determination? Do they understand why that determination was made? And if they don't, can they provide us input that could ultimately change the way that uh, the machine works, right? And so, it's it's one of these it's one of these topics where we're always trying to build trust. We're always trying to build uh, confidence that people can depend on us. And uh, really, when when you build this, when you develop it, it's different than when it's in the wild, like in production, because it's really hard to validate data like that's being processed and generated every single minute of every single day. And so how do we create confidence there? Um, it's been a big topic for us.
0: So what you're saying is, you said, we're not going to give you, it's not about 100% accuracy. It's about probability. We're going to do our best. To, we're going to give you better than what you have right now. Right now you have chaos or uh, lack of structure. We're going to give you structure. Right now your search is limited. We're going to give you more powerful search. We'll start there and then we'll add. Am I right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the same discussion about whether, whether AI and robots, quote unquote, are gonna take away jobs, right? Our, our job is to supplement the humans, make them more efficient, get them access to information that's hard to gather um, with the best degree of accuracy that we can.
0: What about this? A year before you launched, I interviewed, what's his name, Bryce, um, the founder of Task Us, Bra- Bryce Maddock. And I was joking because a lot of what was considered artificial intelligence back there, back then was just his company with real people processing. So you'd pretend or companies would pretend that their software could digest the contents of a receipt, but it was really his people in the background ca- uh, typing it into a form. Why didn't you do that? Why didn't you have real people? We're talking about contracts that are worth a lot of money. Why did you decide not to go to that?
1: Yeah, as you as you operate a SaaS company and you begin to figure out kind of the second order, third order metrics of a company that's not just recurring revenue, and you start getting into things like gross margin, um, you start getting into like cost of goods sold. It actually becomes really hard to scale. And so when when we were starting this journey, I mean, we we needed it to be technology, and we were willing to wait because it's really like a frontier product, right? we're not a rip and replace when we show up at a company and t- you know, talk to them on the phone. Well, where are you storing your contracts? A lot of the time it's like, we're showing it on the on on-prem shared network drive, the S drive, the T drive, right? It's a mounted network drive. Yeah. Right? And so we knew that we are not like in competition with anyone, but ourselves. And so let's go slower. Let's get it right so that we don't have a big gross margin problem and we don't have a big cost of goods, souls inflation. Um, when, when you start to do that, some of those things get really hard to unwind. It gets really hard to unwind like when you're growing like hundreds of customers a, a year, right? Or like 50 customers a month. It, some of those kind of processes get very hard to scale when it's like, it's the other type of AI, it's like actually individuals instead of artificial intelligence and, and it, you'll pay the price (laughs) for it. You you'll pay the price for it. You know, the other type of AI is, is much more scalable, right? You're using, you know, background workers and CPUs and, and, and in cloud infrastructure where you can just spin up more of it. The actual individual's approach to AI eventually gets so complicated to unbundle
0: and scale. But you did have what you were talking about earlier that you did yourself, which was you tagging data at the beginning to teach the well, that's software. A,
1: that, that's like um, labeling, like labeling, labeling
0: data.
1: Right. Yeah, data labeling. That's different than saying, I'm extracting the effective data and calling it AI.
0: Right, right. Okay. Right. First customer came from where? It was a CEO that you knew?
1: Yeah, C-Space in Boston. Okay. Um, Diane Hessen, uh, who's the CEO there, I had interaction with her when I did this kind of developmental school that used to be called Boston Startup School. And it was actually hosted in the Communispace space offices. And I remember when we got the company started, uh, I remember walking through the Communispace space lobby and just seeing every name brand company in the world was their customer. And so I remember emailing Diane, who had actually started as the CEO of that startup school. And so I was like, Danielle, hey, uh, sorry, Diana, hey, I'm an alum. And I'm interested in talking with C-Space because my new company, I think they could be a great fit for it. She said, great, introducing the CFO. We walked in there and the CFO was like, how did you read my brain? We just went through a massive exercise where we had to read all of our contracts because of some something that was going on.
0: Oh, I think I just lost your audio. Oh, oh, there we go. It's back. He said, how did you, we just went through a what that, that, that led to that problem?
1: Uh, we just went through a big contract review. So, so we, we had to do a big contract review. There was some sort of triggering moment inside the company. Uh, and I looked at Chris and I was like, Oh my God, everything is like true. And ultimately he was like, so how much does this thing cost? And, we were like, it's a thousand dollars a month. <laughs> that was the answer. It was a thousand dollars a month. I remember that so.
0: Just good. made it up.
1: Just made it up literally yep. on the spot with all the confidence in the world. yeah hey, it's thousand dollars a month. Twelve thousand dollars to get started. We got a little onboarding fee. We can we can wipe that for you. Didn't even have an order form. Nothing. So,
0: and it's because you were already part of the school, part of the community, and that's what I'm noticing about Boston. That Boston used to be the hub of startups. Am I right? I think Y Combinator started there. And then it felt like Y Combinator needed to move to San Francisco or to Bay Area, I should say. Right. And others did. I'm looking at your face as I'm saying this. I don't mean to be putting down. I know that that Boston <laughs> never lost it. Right. Uh-huh. But it felt almost like it had a chip on its shoulder. And with people like Dharmesh Shah, the Wistia team and others, they created their own little almost community from scratch. Am I right? And there was this let's help each other out atmosphere.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, growing this company and building it in the Boston area has been one of the most rewarding and kind of joyful things I have as CEO. And we're really proud that we're a Boston company because of that great community outreach and community support and great angel investors who have done the journey and great mentors that you can find and by the way, in downtown Boston, you can throw throw a stone and hit like 500 awesome tech companies, like DataDog and Wayfair and Carbon Black and Session M and Data Zoo. and and there's just so much great community here. Um, I lens everything with like the B2B side, which I've always found to be like incredibly amazing. And then it's pillared by like company like Wayfair, company like HubSpot. And all the people who have gone through there, learned from the masters, then spread out into other companies. And it's just an incredible network effect, right? It's just yeah. an incredible network effect that gets created. And with the academia, right? Hundreds of the greatest universities are here, right? All kind of concentrated in a five square mile radius. The talent pool is unreal.
0: Yeah, sometimes it feels like a distraction to get together with other people in a tech community. Sometimes it feels like it's more partying or more talking and less work. But with the right people, it pays off. I see it in my interviews. I see it in my own life. Don't you? I mean, you're obviously an example of it. Yeah. All right. So yeah. then that's how you got your first customer. The next batch of customers, from what I understand from your conversation with our producer, you just start a cold call, a cold emailing, and unlike other departments in a in a company, the legal department doesn't get a lot of cold emails. Doesn't get no. No.
1: Yeah, I before I started before I went full time, I had a I had a stint in operations at a company, Square. Well, were you doing and sales but, for them, weren't you? Uh, I was in sales ops. Right. Okay. So I Was in operations. So. What does
0: that mean, by the way?
1: Well, it's, it's just assisting the, the revenue team to be more efficient, use technology, data okay. tracking. You basically become like the right hand of the VP of sales. And so it was really interesting. I used to sit next to the VP of sales, Steve, and Steve would show me his inbox. He's like, this is my inbox today of polled emails, this widget, that widget, this tool, this gadget. And I, and I was like, wow, it's, it's incredibly hard to get your attention. He's like, yeah, all of these get deleted. Like, I don't care. Like, all yeah. these get deleted. And so when we were like, well, maybe an outbound strategy could work because, I mean, who's emailing the general counsel? Maybe law firms trying to be their outside counsel. You know, obviously they're getting emails. All the terrible ones were like issues in the company, but it worked. It worked. And we just stayed at it. You know, went from one, we thought we'd get one and we thought we could get two and we got two. And by the end of year one, we had like five.
0: What's some of the tools that you use? As somebody who is actually in sales ops, what what software did you use to help you close more sales in that middle stage of your development?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of Salesforce.com knowledge, kind of when the company is bigger and, and you have the reporting and, and uh, you know, Insight Squared is definitely really helpful. You know, it h- helps us track things like pipeline and and the flow in and out. And I, I still do a lot of work you know, in Google Sheets and I have just like having the Excel skill set, SQL, like things like that. I mean, we, 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 were, we were well-versed to kind of do this approach because I had worked in like two companies where like this is a big part of it. And so I had a good kind of acumen to it, which was a good skill set to have being a founder.
0: You mean uh, enterprise sales? That's what you were doing like, before? Yeah, just like,
1: just like not sitting back and expecting people to like come to your website and think this is the greatest thing ever, but saying to yourself, like, no one's going to give us anything. We got to go generate our own demand. E- you know, Email is a cheap method to go out and, and find, quote unquote, pipeline and generate and build pipeline.
0: So then that was, that was, the I call it the middle stage. I don't know if it's exactly perfectly in the middle, but that was your next stage. After that, you started getting more inbound. What did you do to get anyone to even think, to think of you, to think of the problem, to look for you?
1: Yeah, investing in content marketing, which is something that pays off like years and years from <laughs> years and years in the future. It's something you have to invest into. Uh, and then kind of seeing referrals come in, like, you know, they were some person was a general counsel at one company, then they left and then someone on their team went to another company and they were like, oh, I really enjoy using Linsquares. And that kind of creates a network effect. Even people who are all time record now is third job as general counsel bought Link squares three times. Like totally wild. Like totally like beyond our imagination of what could exist. And Here, it's here's funny. Why every that's company- wild
0: for me. I looked it up. There are competitors now. I put a screenshot of some of the competitors that I've got. Um how are what are you doing? to have them not say it's a fresh start, new company, let's look for brand new software. Let's go with someone else. What do you do to stay in touch with your customers after they leave? What do you do to stay on top of what they need as you keep developing the way that you did in the beginning?
1: Yeah, it's simple stuff. I mean, three really simple keys to it is, uh, people want to work with, with folks they know, like, and trust. It's pretty easy. Um, they know you on a personal level, they know you on a business level, they like you, you, know, you do what you say, you say what you do, you, you've provided them the, the product that you sold, uh, and then ultimately, they trust you, but they trust you with their contracts, they trust that when they show up at a new company, they have a new CEO to impress, a new CFO to get budget from, that we won't let them down. I mean, that, that is the key to it, right? I mean, we're, the customer is everything the customer is everything for us truly.
0: What do you, what do you do? Do you still get on calls with them to see what the next problem is? Do you have a more automated way of knowing it?
1: Oh yeah. So luckily now we're at the size where I have a a brilliant success team and brilliant success leadership. Um, We actually do, do kind of two things. We do a quantitative and a qualitative. So on the quantitative side, it's like, Understanding usage, like you know, have you logged in? Have you added files? Have you have you gone and checked out this feature? Have you gotten benefit of this? Are you opening up kind of the automated emails that come out of the app? Like we know how you're using it, and then it's kind of the qualitative, like QBRs, check-ins, quarterly reviews, exec meetings, kind of talking new new products, new features, engage with them on webinars. But yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of care and feeding of the customer base and all things they need.
0: I feel like we learned in school. Um, marketing. It was one of the classes in the, uh, one of the business classes that I got to take as an undergrad at NYU. I wish that they would have talked a little bit about sales and not just marketing and an enterprise sales specifically, because the beauty of enterprise sales is that you do get to build a relationship with your customer. They do pay high so that it's worth the investment in time and that most people who are building software, I don't feel like they have that skill. We're still thinking of how do I put a website between me and my customer, let them buy from the site. Who's a good person yeah. to learn that from? Is it Aaron Ross?
1: Yeah, I I think I think Jason Lumpkin has so much great, great topic on yeah. this. The founder of SaaS there, and, and he's actually on Clubhouse like every day, just dropping SaaS knowledge. Like
0: I didn't realize I've, that. I've
1: been, I've been stalking him around Clubhouse, just listening to him like talk to people and provide tidbits and insights. It's like my new, my new addiction is getting on Clubhouse and burning an hour and listening to Jason. But um, you know, some of, the, some of the thoughts around like, you know, when does it make sense to have a human involved in the sales process, right? I mean, at $10 a month of a product, you probably don't need a human, right? Spotify, you don't need a human. You just sign up, self-service, sign up, start using it. You got access to every album in the, in the world forever um but like at $1000 a month, at $2000 a month, at $10000 a month, at, certainly at $25000 a month there's like kind of an interaction with a human, right? And so there's a, there's probably like a line, I would say you know, you know above above $6000 you're spending, it's hard to do it self-service.
0: What do you guys uh, at $59 hard. a month per user I think I saw, I was on Captera.
1: Uh yeah, Cap- Capterra may not have have it all. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you could you could take a bite of Link Squares in all different ranges, all the way up to you know five hundred thousand dollars, and and all the way down to you know in the tens of thousands of dollars. So, all
0: right, and so the future is for you. Uh, by the way, you have great ratings on uh, Capterra. I want to take a look. Um, the future is for Link Squares. I imagine. Actually, you tell me, what's, if we look out into the, into the future that you're building, what do you see? What can you do for your customers?
1: Yeah, so we do, we do 60 terms out of the box today, algorithmically, 60 pieces of data. You know That'll be in the hundreds before long, you know pro- probably well over 100 this year. Continue to add that value. Um, we have a pre-signature product finalized now. And so finalized is like flying off the shelf. Uh, kind of a, like a lightweight pre-signature option for like contract assembly, drafting and versioning and approvals. And
0: But this is for if I want to start create pre-signature, meaning I yeah. need to start, a, I need to create a new contract. Instead of going yep. to a template that we always use, how about we have something that's a little bit more built for us based on what we what we need?
1: Yeah, some of that. And then, yeah, some of the basic functions, just like, you know, rinse and repeat, mutual NDA, you're using the same NDA over and over again. Where do you go and find that kind of a template, mm. right? And you know, we're stretching link is like far more into like the sales teams, and um, there's some big kind of announcements coming this quarter about kind of our, our commitment to that. So I'm I'm really excited about that. Uh, you know, adding in adding in what we added in kind of this quarter, which is like really advanced dashboarding, that that really provides that kind of holistic view of your contract data. And so uh, I mean, the future is bright. I mean, luckily. With a cloud-based product, we're getting a lot of uh, push and tailwind from people who are like, now they have to be a cloud right. user. You know, before you could maybe hold out if on-prem was still an option, not an option anymore. But what, so, what I mean, I'm, I'm seeing
0: is something like this. Tell me if I'm right on this. When I'm when, I'm, when sure. I when I took a look at Squares, here's what I see. I imagine right at the very beginning, salesperson closes a sale, needs a contract, can go and get a contract, and almost you take over. The brain dead part of the of the of the lawyers work, right? The part where they're just reassembling, where they're not where they're not thinking creatively to solve a problem. You guys take that over. Contract signed. It goes in the same place. Then there's a dashboard that allows management to know how many contracts did we sign. Basic stuff, but more like um, how many of them are recurring. I guess you do that right now. If there's ever an issue with like, maybe there's a problem with North Carolina law for something and and the client needs to know how many of our agreements relate to North Carolina law where there's this issue, right? You know that.
1: Yep, absolutely. And then um, <clears throat> I tell people that we're like, you know, probably halfway through a data journey where well, the first step was like build a really amazing extraction capability to get the data yes. in a raw form. Then it's like, how can you dashboard it and provide summaries and insights what comes next is like benchmarks. Like the thing that really kind of piques my interest about all this data, this hundreds of millions of points of data we're sitting on is like, we actually know what language is in vogue and who is signing what in their mm. agreements, right? Yes. Like if I could tell you that um, you are way below your peers on a certain provision like um, termination for convenience, like why are you signing up for this when actually the, the benchmarks of, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of customers anonymously, the benchmark is like X and you are way, way above that.
0: Right. that, right.
1: That sort of insight no one has. I mean, lawyers often talk about like, what is market? Like this is market and that is market. And I think you should accept this term. And I think you should give me termination for convenience because that's market. And actually, because we've generated like hundreds of millions of points of data, I actually know that's not market. And like that's, that tool yeah. so, like, that's what gets me excited about all this data we're sitting on and yeah. we're gonna take. I can give you the ultimate paralegal that actually knows everything that is market in the world. That's going into legal language. To right. make you smarter, to help you make better decisions.
0: Right, so your clients then have the knowledge of all these agreements that have been signed by companies like theirs and what is, what is acceptable, what they could push, where they stand. That's freaking exciting, man. All right. <laughs> I love that you call it, it Link Squares. I find that sometimes when people have big visions for their companies, it doesn't it doesn't translate to the name. The name is too narrow. This gives you it's almost like the Lego blocks. I picture you as a kid where you got excited about Lego, we're going to build this, we're going to build that. You got the data now in blocks, what you could build now just is wide open.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's legal tech is so hot right now. And I think it's the last department inside of a company that is awaiting their revolution to technology. I think finance was the last one that did it with all the great subscription management companies and ERPs. This is it, this is the last frontier left, right? And it's our job to elevate the status in the C-suite of the legal, of the general counsel, of the chief legal officer, so that they can be parity with their, their peers and marketing and sales and engineering, where they have all these dashboards and insights yeah. and this widget and that report and that gadget, and like. We're, our job is to make them, you know, James Bond. We're the queue.
0: All right. The website is it's just linksquares.com, right? You got it. Straight up simple. And I want to thank the two sponsors who made this interview happen. The first, go host your website with Hostgator. They'll do WordPress, they'll do any number of different platforms. Go to hostgator.com slash mixergy. They'll give you a great price. And again, if you like the way that I lead conversations, if you want to get a sense of how I do it, the people over at Unbounce basically paid me to write out some of my ideas and I'd love your feedback on it. Go to Unbounce.com slash Mixergy to get that. Shal, thanks so much. And man, this is so freaking impressive. Aren't you excited by this? How many people come up with great <laughs> ideas but they're just great to them? This makes sense for clients. This is this is truly exciting, don't you think?
1: Uh, I, I definitely do. And and you know, thank you for your time today and, and taking the time with me. And yeah, every every single company in the world can use this product. That's what fires me up. And, well, you're thinking and that our- at some
0: point in the future I won't have to go into my Google Drive or can I now? Is this is this I'll tell you how many contracts I'm signing a year. We're doing I'd say maybe 20 contracts a year. I feel like it might be overkill for us. What do you think?
1: I I think you and I should talk. So you think even uh, for a company I, my size? Absolutely. I mean I mean we we have customers that are like sub 500 contracts under management. And they're investing in the future where they're going to have a lot more. So, yeah, we should definitely talk.
0: All right. Thank you so much.